So I uh, came across a uh, survey that had been done among children asking them about love and marriage and those types of things. And I thought I'd share some of their comments in response to different questions about love and marriage. So they were asked how people in love typically behave. So Wendy, age eight, said, well, when a person gets kissed for the first time, they fall down and then they don't get up for at least an hour. They were also asked, why does love happen between certain people? Andrew, age six, said, well, one of the people has freckles, so he finds someone else who has freckles. Another one put this, Manuel, age eight, he says, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't quite so painful. They were also asked, what is falling in love like? Well, John, age nine, said, it's like an avalanche. You better run really fast from it. Glenn said this, if falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. They asked him how important looks were when it comes to falling in love. Anita says this, if you want to be loved by somebody who isn't already in your family, it certainly doesn't hurt to be beautiful. But I like Brian's reply better. He's seven. He said, it isn't just always how you look. Look at me. I'm handsome as anything, but I haven't gotten anybody to marry me yet. <laughs> then there were some general opinions about love. David said, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. Very humble guy. Regina said, I'm not rushing into anything like being in love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. And then they also asked him how to make sure that love lasts. And Dave, he had a great answer. He's eight years old. He said, be a good kisser. It make, might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. <laughs> so that's some pretty funny stuff coming from kids. But I couldn't help when I was reading this to think, I don't know that a lot of adults could really give good answers about love and marriage and those types of things. And that's kind of why we're doing this series. And the question has been, what do happy couples do? And we've just kind of been in this series and we've been talking that the people come into a relationship and they have this box that we've been calling it of hopes and dreams and, and desires. And everybody comes into a relationship with that. And the thing about our box, every one of us that comes into a relationship, we think that our box is the best. I mean, why wouldn't anybody want to organize their dreams, desires, and hopes around my box? I mean, after all, I know what's best. I know how we should spend the money in our relationship, and I know what kind of car we should drive, and you can drive whatever, this is what I'm going to drive, and how we're going to spend our time, and just all of those types of things. And we tend to organize it around our hopes and desires and dreams, and we don't understand why the other person isn't excited about that. But part of the reason is, when we take this and we hand it to that significant other in our relationship, it doesn't sound so much like hopes, dreams, and desires. It's more like a weight. It's more like an assignment. It's more like homework. And there's this feeling of, well, if I don't do this well, you're going to be disappointed. And so for them, it's not so much hopes, dreams, and desires. It's more like expectations. I'm expected to do these kinds of things. 
And then what oftentimes happens with these hopes, dreams, and desires, what should be a beautiful thing, starts becoming a transactional thing. And there's all this negotiating that starts to take place. And, well, we went to your parents' house last time for Christmas, so this year we're going to mine. Last year we did what you want to do on summer vacation, so this year we're going where I want to go on summer vacation. You blew the budget, so now it's my turn to blow the budget. And there's just all these transactions and negotiating that takes place, and this debt-debtor relationship pops up, or this, this owe-me kind of idea. Well, you owe me this because that's what we did before, now it's my turn. Or you owe me because that's what husbands do. That's what wives do. And it just sets up a, an owe me kind of relationship. And that just doesn't work very well in a marriage. And here's something else. We haven't really talked about this. We've been talking about kind of tangible things like cars you drive and what house you live and how you spend money and things like that. But there's a lot of intangibles. A lot of emotional things that, that you can't even really like visualize with, with stuff like I did with, with, with the other things. Pop that list up there if you would, that next list. And just think about some of these intangible types of things. Everybody wants to be respected, don't they? Everybody wants to be desired. You want to be admired. I mean, God. We want our wives to think we have what it takes, right? I mean, we want her to think that. We want everybody to think that. But I especially want Renee to think that. We all do. And the reason is because every other day we're wondering, do I really have what it takes? But we want to make sure that our wives, and we all want to be cherished. We all want to be protected. We want to be pursued. We want a person to be attracted to us. We want to be Trustworthy, we want somebody checking up on us all the time. You want to be prioritized, don't you? I mean, you don't want to compete with his car, do you? You don't want to compete with her income, do you? You don't want to compete with his parents. You don't want to compete with her job. You want to be prioritized. You want to be the one that really matters. And so there's all these things, and the list could just go on and on. And these are good things. They're not bad things. They're just thing things. They're good. And a lot of them have to do with the fact that we're made in the image of God. So these are very good things. And they're just part of the, the relational dynamic. But what do we do with them? If you're handing your, your box of hopes, dreams, and desires, and it becomes expectations... Then what are we supposed to do if we're not supposed to give it to them? And we talked about that. We said in week one, we understand that we love each other unconditionally, just like Jesus loved us unconditionally. We realize that that person doesn't owe me anything. I'm supposed to love them unconditionally. And then last week, we talked about what, it, what is kind of the, 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 the keystone for this whole thing that we're talking about, the tipping point. Where Paul talks about mutual submission in Ephesians chapter 5. And he talks about this idea that, that we mutually are submissive to each other. And that means that there's this race to the back of the line in a marriage where both people are trying to put the other person first. And when, when you can do that in a marriage, in a relationship, it just totally changes it. 
See, because those are the two things that happy couples do. They practice that going to the back of the line and putting the other person first. And then the other thing they do, they, they love each other unconditionally. But still, what do we do with this? All those hopes and dreams and desires. What do we do with it? Well, we're going to look at the book of Peter today, 1 Peter. Let me tell you a little bit about Peter before we kind of dive into this. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. I mean, this guy hung out with Jesus for three years. Peter was a guy that was always saying things that he shouldn't have said. Peter had no filters. He was like the poster child for putting your foot in your mouth. I mean, that was Peter. In the end, Peter was a coward. He denies Jesus three times. But Peter was also one of the first to realize that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then you get to the book of Acts, and Peter is this guy who is telling everybody about Jesus. And for doing that, he gets thrown into jail and thrown into prison and beaten up and some of those kind of things. And he goes through these hardships. But here's the important thing to remember about Peter. Peter hung out with Jesus. And this whole unconditional love, mutual submission kind of idea, Peter totally gets it. And he's going to talk in chapter 5 about that. But before we get to that, I want to kind of mention this. If we're not going to do what Peter suggests with our hopes, dreams, and desires, what are the alternatives? I mean, what are we going to do if, if, if we're not going to do what Peter, Peter said? You know, Peter, you know, we talk about cars, you know, what kind of cars we're going to drive when we get married, and we have expectations about that. How many kids we're going to have, that kind of thing. So we got that, and then we have the, the whole conflict thing. How are we going to handle conflict in marriage? So we get that. And, you know, how are we going to spend our time in the holidays and, and all those kind of things? And I could stuff all kinds of more stuff into this backpack. So so what are we going to do with it? Are we, are, are we just going to just keep carrying it around? I mean, if we're not going to hand it off to somebody, do we just, we just carry it around with us everywhere? And you know what happens when you're carrying it around? Eventually you get kind of tired. You know, I can carry this like this for quite a while, but eventually, you know what's going to happen? My triceps are going to start burning. I mean, they are. It's not that heavy, but it, they're going to start burning. Well, in a relationship, if we just try to carry that around, it just doesn't work. I mean, you could ignore it. I mean, you could just kind of pretend that it doesn't even exist. How does that work out when you just ignore it? Just, it doesn't. It doesn't work very good in your relationship when you just ignore your dreams, hopes, and desires. Because you just become a pretender. Pretenders aren't any fun. Well, I just give, I just give, I just give, I just give all the time in my relationship. And that works a while. And eventually, you just wear out. Because God has not designed you to just give, give, and give, and just totally ignore your hopes and your dreams your desires, the things that he built into you that are rattling around inside of you. So ignoring it doesn't work. What's another option? I'll just stay busy, right? Or busier. I'll spend more time playing tennis. I'll spend more time playing golf. I'll do more fishing. I'll do more cooking. I'll hang out with my girlfriends more often. I'll just pour into my kids. And, you know, occasionally we'll get together and we'll just kind of be like roommates. 
Now that works, doesn't it? That's not what you got into it for, to be roommates. That's not exciting. That's not what you really want to do. But that's what we do sometimes. Well, I'll just ignore it, and I'll just do that, but that's not any fun, and certainly it's not positive for your kids just, just to get busy. So if that's not the answer, what about the third option? I'll just find somebody else. I'll just find somebody else. Now, if you're just kind of the front end of a relationship, maybe that'll work. You know, you've been dating for a little while, maybe you're in the early stages of engagements, and you begin to realize that, that my box of hopes, dreams, and desires and anything like his box of hopes, dreams, and desires might be a good thing just to kind of break it off. Go your separate ways. That works. You still have time. But for most people, if, if you're married, that's no longer an option. Because here's why. When you move into a, another relationship, get this, this is deep. This is really deep. Wherever you go, there you are. You follow me? Wherever you go, there you are. In other words, whatever next relationship you go into, you're still in the relationship. And whatever problems that you brought to the relationship, most likely you are going to bring to the next relationship. You're just changing the face, you might be changing the address, you might be changing the complexity of the problem, but you are still in the relationship because you're the same guy that you were. You're the same girl that you were. And just changing the relationship doesn't do anything. And you know what else happens in those types of situations? And I know you know this, but sometimes it's just good to hear somebody tell you this. If you're married or you're in a serious relationship and you're meeting somebody else and it seems to be the grass is greener on the other side and it's enticing and it's exciting and, and all those kind of things, you know what? They, I've met those people, they are on their best behavior. They are, right? And you're on your best behavior. And you get there and all those things that were stirred up the first time in your other relationship, they're stirred up again. And, and it's exciting and it's enticing. But you're both on your best behavior. If they want to know the real you, they can come talk to your husband and your wife and find out, right? Am I right? Or your roommate at least find out who you really are. Because you are on your best behavior. And it's much harder to stay in a relationship and make it work. And bailing on that relationship is generally not the answer. And get this. We don't rush into a new relationship because we want to fulfill somebody else's hopes, dreams, and desires. Right? No, we rush into that relationship because we're hoping somebody's going to fill our hopes, dreams, and desires. Oh, I'm getting out of this relationship because I can't fulfill my husband's hopes, dreams, and desires. I want to go fill somebody else's. No, 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 no. You're doing that because something in your relationship's not being met. So you're not going into it like, like, you know, hey, I'm just trying to help somebody else. No, you're trying to help yourself. And we just need to be honest about that. We need to be adults about that. That's why we want to change. You're not getting something that you need. And you're going to hate me for this. And like I said, sometimes you just need to hear people say something. Some of you are not going to like this. But I'm just telling you, 
When you're dating someone who is divorced, time is your friend. If you are dating somebody that's divorced or you're, you've been divorced recently, time is your friend. Don't rush into it. They say it takes at least three years to emotionally heal from an event like a divorce. Folks, I've been doing this for a long, long time. Time is your friend. Let's be honest. Don't rush into another relationship. If you hear your mama saying to you, eject, 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 listen to your mama. She knows what she's if two or three of your friends are also saying, oh, he's so cute, but listen to your friends. If somebody's two or three of your friends are going, hey, there are some red flags here, listen to them. Time is your friend. You start feeling that pressure, listen to those friends. They know what they're talking about, and they are not emotionally involved. Back to what we were talking about. I know I kind of ran off there. I was doing my Billy thing. I was running a rabbit trail. <laughs> but I was doing it on purpose. I got it written down. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. That was easy. Who's going to hear about this? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> have money. See you later. <laughs> so back to Peter. Before I get myself in more trouble. Peter doesn't use the term mutual submission. But he, he's talking about mutual submission. He's talking about a relationship principle that kind of goes through all relationships. And we're going to kind of take that principle and apply it to marriage or to romantic relationships. So 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 5. And everything should be on the screen behind me. He says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. So let me just kind of... Catch you up to where at this point in 1 Peter chapter 5. In the first part of chapter 5, Paul is talking to elders. He's not talking to the elderly. He's talking to elders as in the pastors of the church, the leadership of the church. And he's telling them, this is how you ought to care for the flock. This is how you ought to behave. Then he kind of switches gears in verse 5. He says, and we know he's switching gears because he says, in the same way. That means he's going to talk about something else. He says, in the same way, I want you younger people. In some cases, you've been on your translation, it actually says young men. He says, I want you to submit to your elders. And he's not talking about elderly. He's talking, he's not just talking to like kids or teenagers. He's talking to everybody else in the church. He says, you need to submit to the leadership of the church. To the pastors. And then, so he says that, and then he kind of switches gears a third time when he says, all of you. So first he was talking to the elders, then he was talking to the younger people, and then he says, now I'm talking to all of you. All of us. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. That's the general relationship principle that we're going to apply to romantic relationships, marriage relationships, everything else. And so basically the implication is when he says clothe yourselves with humility, you have to ask yourself, what would a humble person do? So at every point in a relationship, 
like conflict or, or, or every iteration or whatever in a relationship, ask yourself, what would a humble person do? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not really a humble person. I get that. I appreciate your honesty. So probably a lot of us have never really asked ourselves that question. What would a humble person do? So I want to at least this morning give you the opportunity to ask that question. What would a humble person do? So at the count of three, I'm going to ask you to turn to the person on your right and left, and I want you to ask them, what would a humble person do? Down to three. One, two, three. Go. That was one question. And some of you are still crying. Now we know what the moms go through. They tell us to do something, and we're going to do it. But what would a humble person do? Well, Peter kind of answers that question, but he kind of answers it in, in, in kind of a, a, a unique way. It's almost like he's anticipating a question like somebody saying, well, why humility, Peter? And here's what he says. Next phrase. Because God opposes the proud. So in other words, he's like saying, do you want to be in opposition to what God says? Because God opposes the proud. I mean, does, when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, does God tend not to lean away from proud people? Does God tend to like push away proud people? And before we judge God too harshly about that, don't we do the same thing? I mean, do you like to hang around with arrogant people? Do you tend to push away from people who have that sense of entitlement? Do you like to hang around with people that seem like they just want to squeeze every drop out of you just for their own personal satisfaction? Do you like people that seem to have no understanding at all, no self-awareness of how their behavior affects you? No, we don't. And God doesn't care for proud people either. Care for demanding, proud, arrogant people. And so there's kind of this extraordinary promise. And when you go back and you look in the Old Testament and you look in the New Testament, almost always when God talks about humility, there's kind of this sense, this promise most of the time that if you'll be humble, God will do something for you or do something for your relationship. That's almost true universally. When you look, when God talks about humility, it's like there's a promise that he will do something for you. Peter even repeats it and says it in a different way. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Now, this isn't God's mighty hand like he's, I gotcha. That's not what he's talking about. He's like he's talking about being under the authority of God's umbrella. He's talking about being under the canopy, so to speak, of God's authority. And it's like when you go humble, when you go small, you are basically backing into a place that's the safest place you can be in God's hand. That's what he's saying. That's an imperative. That means, the second one's an imperative that means when you want to power up on somebody, when you want to get defensive with somebody, when you want to get demanding, the imperative here is no. Ask yourself, what would a humble person do? 
And then God can do something extraordinary for you. Notice the second promise or result here, that he may lift you up in due time. God, I've done the humble thing. I've done the submissive thing. I've put the other first person first. And God's like, okay, in my time, in due time, when the time is right, I'm going to lift you up. Now, I can see on some of your faces this morning that you're like, well, Dennis, you're the pastor, and I'm sure you understand what you're talking about this morning, but it's kind of, you're kind of glassy-eyed, right? Because that's the way I was when I was studying this week. I kind of got glassy-eyed, right? Because you're like, I don't quite see how this all fits together. I mean, I thought I read somewhere where God had wings, and now you're saying God has hands, and I don't know, is God like an eagle, or is God like a lion? You know, what are you talking about? Is God, am I supposed to reach out, and God's going to grab my hand like he's pulling me out of the water or something? Well, Peter kind of seems to think that, too. Because when you look at this, you get the feeling that Peter's like, yeah, maybe they understand this, but maybe I need to give them some handles here, kind of help them a little bit with this. And so in verse 7, he kind of gives a handle. Here's what he says. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety. All those relationship frustrations, he said, she said, I thought, he thought, she thought, I thought it was always going to be this way, I dreamed it would be, they promised, I thought we were going to do this. Cast all your anxiety on him. Don't miss this. This word cast, flee, throw. You know what he's saying? Unloaded on God. This is your opportunity to unload on God. Unload on God. Look, instead of unloading on that significant other, instead of unloading on that person down the hall who you've asked to, to carry this stuff around with, don't do that. He says, hurl it, throw it, cast it on me, unload it on me. All those unfulfilled dreams that you thought they had promised, all those desires that had kind of been dashed. I thought, I thought, we talked through, we agreed upon. He said, all that, throw it on me. And I know, I know somebody sitting here thinking this morning, Dennis, this is your JV answer to my varsity question. Just pray about it. I've done that. I don't think it's really working. I mean, what is God? Some kind of care bearer, and I just throw all my cares against him? Why, why would I want to do that? I'll tell you why. Because of this. Because he loves us. Because he sent his son to die on a cross for us. That he loves us that much. Because we're important to him. Our lives are important. Our relationships are important to him because we matter to him. We matter to him so much. He died on the cross for us. And this kind of prayer that he's talking about here, this is not like a little prayer you say behind the driving, while you're driving behind the steering wheel. This is not a bless me, Lord, and you go on your way. This is not like some memorized prayers that you have and you, you just kind of repeat those. 
there's an intensity to this word cast. You know, this, this is just not like mamby-pamby prayers. This is like surrender kind of thing. God, I do, I, I, I'm so frustrated. I can't take it. Take it. Bob Goff has a book out. It's called Love Does. And Bob Goff was an attorney for many, many years. And he said that when he used to take people in for dispositions, this is what he would tell them to do. He said, when we get in there, I want you to sit down and I want you to put your hands on your knees. And then he says, sit there like that. And then he says, I want you to turn your hands over so that your forearms are on your knees and your hands are open. And then he said, no matter what, do not close your hands. He says, it's hard to be defensive if you keep your hands open. He's right. I mean, think about it. What happens when you start getting mad or angry or defensive? Right? And they start going all over the place and you're making motions and all that kind of stuff. He says, keep your hands open and you won't get defensive. Some of y'all are going to be at lunch today and you're going to be like, I'm trying to eat like this. The reason I tell you that is because it's significant of what this prayer is talking about. It's opening up our hands and surrendering. The frustrations of my relationship, God, they're yours. I'm desperate. This is real surrender. And listen. Peter didn't make this stuff up. He actually is referring back to a Psalms in the Old Testament. I want you to think about this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. These Jewish boys, these 12 disciples that hung out with, with Jesus, they learned to pray almost from the time they could talk. And they memorized hundreds and hundreds of prayers. Hundreds of them. And they prayed those prayers all the time. But when they start hanging out with Jesus, they realize that Jesus prays different than they pray. And that there's an intensity to Jesus' prayers. That there's this ferocity to Jesus' prayers that they don't have. I mean, there are places when, when they are hearing Jesus pray, you can almost sense that they're like, man, I, I never prayed like that. It's almost like, we better step back a little bit. Because I'm not sure we're supposed to hear the way Jesus is talking to God. And, you know, this is, this is just not something they were used to. Because there was such intensity and such ferocity to his prayers. And eventually, after hearing Jesus pray a lot, they realize, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Because they realize that they don't know how to pray the way Jesus prays. They don't understand that intensity. And so now Peter, years later, is like, okay, guys, I learned some things about praying. I went through some real hardships, going in jail and being beaten and all those kinds of things. And I watched Jesus pray, and I learned some things. And so he begins to share what he's talking about here, which is actually a reference to Psalms chapter 55. It was written by David. David was a poet. David was a writer. David was a warrior. He was a king. 
He's also a man that had been forgiven for a lot of things because he was an adulterer and a murderer. So you've got this guy that's writing. When he writes, it's like half prayer journal, half rants, half devotional. And he just kind of mixes it all up together. And then God says, he's a man after my own heart. So I want us to look at Psalms chapter 55, and we're going to kind of go through it quick. But I want you to notice the intensity, and he's going to use the same word, cast, in this prayer. But notice the intensity and the ferocity of this prayer. Verse 12. He says, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. Well, that makes sense, right? I mean, if your enemy is insulting you, that's what enemies do. I mean, that's what they do. He said, if a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But then notice what he says in verse 13. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend. So this is a relationship he's talking about. If an enemy, not my friend, does this, I could take it. But it's not. It's somebody close to me. Then in verse 14 he says, With whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked among the walked about among the worshipers. I can't believe he would do this. I can't believe she would do this. I can't believe they've turned on me. We used to go to church together. We used to walk around and people would look at us and say, oh, what a happy couple. They look so happy. They seem to have it all together. They're like the perfect couple. And now he's turned on me. I can't believe it's happening to me. And I want you to notice 15. Listen to this. Notice how the, it amps up, so to speak. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Kill them. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead, hell. For evil finds lodging among them. My like David, tell us what you really think, right? I mean, you know how you could translate this literally? And I don't say these terms, and I don't let my kids say them, but you know what David is saying here about his close companion that's turned on him? To hell with him. That's what it's saying. Down alive to the realm of the dead. To hell with them. I don't care. Do you ever pray like that? Do your prayers ever have that kind of ferocity and intensity to them? Then he goes on, verse 16 and 17. As for me, I call to God and the Lord saves me. It's not a steering wheel prayer here. Evening, morning, and noon. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my thoughts, and he hears my voice. And he repeats that three times. It's like three times a day. Out of my frustrations, I'm calling, God, help me. And he continues, he rescues me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, who will hear them and humble them because they have no fear of God. He's likening it to a war, to a battle, and God comes to his rescue. This person, my companion, that I thought was my friend, he's attacked me. He's violated his vows. He's broken his promise, his covenant. He said, she promised. I thought we were on the same page. Didn't we agree? Haven't we talked about it? Didn't you write it down? Verse 20 and 21 my companion attacks his friends and he violates his covenant. 
covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. He's violating his covenant. He's broken his vows with me. He's such a talker. She's such a negotiator. She always wins the argument. The talk is smooth as butter. But you don't understand. You think, oh, he's just so nice and he's so polite. No, you don't know him. You should see him at home. Oh, she's just so sweet. No, she's not. You need to see her at home. Like swords are drawn, he says. You don't know the real them. They might appear and they're a good talker, smooth as butter. But the swords are drawn. And then he kind of, like David, regathers himself and he kind of recenters himself. And this is what he says. The same thing that he said in the New Testament, Peter says years later. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. But you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay. The bloodthirsty and deceitful will not live out their days. Some pretty strong words. Do you ever pray like that? I mean, do you ever come to God and just unload on him and, and tell him your frustrations? Now, I'm sure you've unleashed it on your spouse at some point or that significant other person in your in your family, the person down the hallway, the person in the other bedroom, boy, when the garage door opens up, I'm going to let them have it. But have you ever talked to God like that? Have you been honest with God? God, I'm so frustrated about my marriage. God, I wish I'd never married him. I wish I'd never even met him. I'm just over it. I need you because I don't know what to do. take those hopes and those dreams and those desires and you give them to him. That's what it means. That's what we do. Because he loves us. Things like relationships that are important to us are important to him. And we cast it, we throw it, we fling it, we give it to him. We pray with intensity. God, take this. I, I, I can't do it anymore. You get down on your knees or however you pray. And say, God, here's my box. Here's my backpack of stuff that I don't know what to do with. Here's my list of expectations and my disappointments and, and my heartbreak and, and all those kinds of things. All that he promised me and she promised me and I just thought it was going to be like this and, and, and it just hasn't been. And that's an expression of humility when you do that. And when you humble yourself like that, you give God an opportunity to work. And don't be surprised when you do that if the first thing that doesn't happen is God does something in you, not the person down the hallway, but God does something in you. Maybe your box, you begin to think of it a little bit differently. Maybe you can start to pull a few things out of your box because you realize that that person you married, God didn't create them be able to meet some of those things that are in your box. They just, that's just not the way God made them. And you begin to, to change. Maybe some of your hopes, dreams, and desires, God begins to work in your life, and you're the one that begins to change. God says, I invite you. 
where I needed to be. So what do healthy couples do? They love unconditionally. You don't owe me anything. I'm loving you anyway. They practice mutual submission. We run to the back of the line and do everything we can to put the other person first. And then the last thing we do, we throw things, but not at each other. We throw it, we cast it, we fling it to God. 